For many of you, you know that we've been in this letter of Peter, and as we've seen, Peter is writing to believers who have been scattered across the Roman Empire, and they're facing incredibly difficult circumstances. They're counting the cost, as we saw this morning, and they're paying the price to live out their Christian experience in a very hostile world. And Peter, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, is writing to encourage them and to remind them of their identity in Christ, the privileges that they have in Christ, and their responsibilities to live for Christ even under such persecution. And in this section that we've been looking at in chapter 2, there are some incredible truths and great encouragements as Peter draws out some of the amazing blessings that God has given to the believer by his grace, these spiritual privileges. And we've seen that these privileges come to us in Jesus Christ alone. You see that in verse 4. And if we're believers, by God's grace, we came to Christ for salvation. Every blessing comes to us in and through him. We were brought to Christ, we came to Christ, we remain in Christ, we abide, we stay, we rest in him, in the living Savior who is life, and who gives his own life to all who believe. And in Christ, these privileges then flow, and we've seen them, and let me just remind you of them. We are united with Christ, in union with him. The very life of Christ exists in the believer. As living stones, we are being built up a spiritual house. The cornerstone is Christ. We've also been given access to the law. Peter explains that we are a holy priesthood to offer up spiritual sacrifices to God through Jesus Christ. God has given us access. He's opened up the throne of grace to us so that in Christ we can come boldly to the law. And then we've got this great security in the law. As believers, we will never be disappointed in the Lord Jesus. He'll never fail us. He'll never let us down. People do, people let us down, but Jesus never fails. And we are totally secure in him for time and for eternity. And then we also saw we've been given this great love for the Lord. The Lord Jesus Christ is precious to those who believe. We see his value. We see his glory. We see his loveliness. The fairest of the fair. It's a spiritual privilege to hold Christ precious and to love him. Because the world hates him and rejects him. And then we saw last time we've been chosen by the Lord. God has chosen us who believe purely of his own sovereign purpose and predetermination. Nothing to do with us. Nothing to do with anything that we've done or that we deserved it or earned it. Nothing of that purely. This amazing sovereign grace. And in that we've also been brought to reign with the Lord. We've been made a royal priesthood. And it says that we will rule and reign with the Savior. Incredible things. And then tonight we continue. Let's look at the next one, verse 9. We've been separated to the Lord. Separated to the Lord. A holy nation. It means a holy people, a people set apart to God. Now once again, as he writes under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, Peter draws the imagery from the Old Testament. And in fact, Exodus 19.6, we read, You shall be to me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. 
And so in that text, it's speaking of Israel and the Old Covenant. And it's interesting to note that this title is, is given to the people of God throughout the Old Testament. And uh, you can go away and you can find some of the references in Leviticus and Deuteronomy and Isaiah. A holy people, a holy nation. And it's a tragedy as you read through the Old Testament to see the way Israel in the Old Testament, they went away from that repeatedly. But here, Peter applies it in terms of new covenant people in Christ. We are citizens of a holy nation created by God, his own special people. We say, well, well, what does that mean? Well, it means we've been set apart to God. And that's not only in terms of service, but in terms of our relationship to him. You know, it is staggering, dear friends, to think that the holy God, by his great grace, has purposed to draw vile sinners like me to himself, to pluck us out of that darkness into life, from death to life, out of the kingdom of Satan into the kingdom of his dear son. And that's exactly what he has done. He has separated us from sin and Satan and the world and to himself. We've been separated from what is unholy and we have been devoted to God. And Peter has already explained that we, if we're believers, were chosen for this from before the foundation of the world according to the sovereign purpose and foreknowledge of God. This election of grace accomplished by the Savior, applied in time by the Holy Spirit, elect, regenerated, converted, set apart to God in and through Jesus Christ, that covenant sealed with his blood. And when a person is saved, it's not just that their sins have been forgiven, but they've been set apart from sin and death and hell to life and intimacy with God, to know him, to walk with him. You know, in Acts 15, we read this in verses 7 to 9. Peter rose up and said to them, Men and brethren, you know that a good while ago, God chose among us that by my mouth, the Gentiles should hear the word of the gospel and believe. So God, who knows the heart, acknowledged them by giving them the Holy Spirit, just as he did to us, and made no distinction between us and them. Here it is, purifying their hearts by faith. Purifying, to be made holy, to be set apart from sin, set apart to God. And when you were saved, this setting apart was realized in time. 1 Corinthians 1.30, but of him you are in Christ Jesus who became for us wisdom from God and righteousness and sanctification and redemption. Now, there are some different elements to sanctification, this setting apart that you need to see. The first is what we call positional sanctification. When you are set apart, you are set apart to belong to the Lord. That's your position in Christ. You've been taken out of the kingdom of darkness, placed into the kingdom of God's dear Son. You are no longer under the devil. You are, your father is the living God. You belong to him. You're his possession. You have been set apart from sin in terms of its penalty. And it means you've been sanctified in Christ in terms of one day you will be made holy like Christ. That outcome is not in doubt. Believer, you have been sanctified. That is your position in Christ. But then there's something what we call progressive sanctification. And in this life, we're not the finished, fully realized state. And what is ours in position is being worked out day by day. And so we are sanctified and we are being sanctified. 
So when we were converted, the pattern of our life was changed. We were given the desire, the enabling, the empowering to live for God and his glory. The grip of sin was broken upon us. We still have to battle against sin and the flesh and the enemy. And we know that there are times when we stumble and fall, but the work is being done. And sin is no longer the dominant pattern in our lives. And so the Spirit of God is working in us to transform us to be more like the Lord Jesus. And so there's a a progressive reality so that we become in practice what we are by God's grace in position. And that will be completed in that great and final day. 1 Thessalonians 4.3 This is the will of God, your sanctification. We have this great privilege. We are set apart to him, his possession. No longer slaves to sin. No longer the children of the enemy. We are set apart as God's holy people. Brought into that new relationship. And now that needs to be worked out in practice. To live in the light of that holy identity. To be holy as he is holy. And that's why battling sin is so serious. It's why we need to uh, put to death the flesh. Because it's so contrary to our union with Christ. And who we are as a people set apart to God. Then you say to me, well, what does that look like practically? Well, You'll be pleased to know it shouldn't look like a monk being hidden away somewhere as though you've got to be in total isolation. Do you know you could be in the most secluded place and still have the battle because it's an internal thing? And that's what legalism is. It's not legalism either. You know, the Pharisees had their the man-made laws, do's and don'ts, and the Lord Jesus said that they were like whitewashed tombs. You know, they looked all clean on the outside, but they were dead on the inside. So it's not that. It's also not going around with some sort of false piety and dull looks and all the rest. No, friends, it is cultivating a close, personal walk with Jesus Christ. And we need to understand that we are set apart to the Lord, not just in position, but in terms of that relationship, that intimacy. James 4 verse 8, draw near to God and he will draw near to you. You know, we're already joined in Christ, united, and now we need to stay close, which will affect the way that we live. It will impact our conduct. In fact, that's the the key to a changed life, to, to know Christ and to stay close to Christ. You know, there are many who are trying to live their Christian lives without that basic necessity. They just don't understand the significance of union with the Savior. They've not grasped that truth. And so they they look to methods and they look to means rather than pursuing Christ himself and that walk with him. You see, when we're walking with him and when we know him and we know his nearness, we'll want to do those things which please him, which he has given us to do. And that will have that transforming impact on our minds, on our heart, on our attitudes, our conduct, everything. And so we are separated to the Lord and we need to stay close. Stay close to Christ. And then I want you to see another element, but we're just going to jump over a few. Verse 10, God's own possession. We're separated to the Lord. We are possessed of him. We are his own possession. It says also in verse 9, his own special people. And again, the imagery is from the Old Testament. Exodus 19, verse 5. You shall be a special treasure to me above all people. 
Isaiah 43, this people I have formed for myself. And so there are many other places which speak of the people of Israel being the possession of the Lord. And now Peter takes that imagery and he applies it to those who are in Christ. And it's speaking of the fact that we've been purchased, that we've been redeemed, that we've been bought with a price. It's the same word and emphasis in Ephesians 1 verse 14 where it speaks of the redemption of the purchased possession. We are God's own possession because he paid the price. And what was the price? Acts 20 verse 28, the church of God which he purchased with his own blood. 1 Corinthians 6 20, you were bought at a price. The price was the death of the Son of God upon the cross. Titus 2.14, Jesus who gave himself for us, that he might redeem us from every lawless deed and purify for himself his own special people. And so God, by sovereign election, chose us by the sacrifice of Christ, paid the price to buy us back. Friends, that should have a deep impact upon us in every way, not least upon how we view our brothers and sisters how we view fellowship between us. Blood-bought people. You know, that fellowship is to be treasured and protected and valued. We are God's own possession. And you know, it is just staggering. It's such a glorious thing to be able to say that you belong to the Lord. You belong to Him. To be the personal possession of God, of the Lord Jesus. I am His and He is mine. We are the possession of the Lord. We belong to Him. An incredible privilege. And then in verse 9, I want you to see the next thing. That we have been brought into the light. Separated to the Lord, God's own possession, and brought into the light. His own special people that you may proclaim the praises of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. You know that contrast between light and darkness is a real common picture in the New Testament. Darkness is a place where no light intrudes where deeds of evil are conceived and carried out, darkness gives us that description of being totally in the grip of sin and ruined by sin and under the dominion of the prince of darkness, Satan. And it draws in ideas of, of ignorance, darkness in the way that we think, blind to the truth, no understanding of the truth of God. And then there's moral darkness. You, you can't see righteousness. You don't know what is right and what is wrong in terms of how God sees things. John 1.5, the light shines in the darkness and the darkness did not comprehend it. The unbeliever is in that darkness and darkness is in the unbeliever. And the ruin of sin is so pervasive. The Bible says that the unbeliever is a child of wrath, a child of darkness, walking in the darkness and loving the darkness. Darkness is their natural habitat. John 3.19, this is the condemnation that the light has come into the world and men love darkness rather than light because their deeds were evil. They hate the light because it exposes the wickedness that is there. And so man's natural disposition is not to seek the Lord, but to run away from him, to hide from the light. They don't want anything to do with the gospel. They don't want you to confront them with the truths of Christ. And the depth of darkness is profound and people are fast bound in sin and nature's night. And until God calls them out of that, 
They don't see their true state. We come out of darkness only when God effectually calls us out, when God brings his light to us. And the darkness has no power to extinguish that light. That's a wonderful thing to be called into that light. It means to be called into Christ. Called out of that darkness. God intervening. God calling. God taking the initiative. God breaking in. It's interesting. Whenever you see the word called in the epistles, it always refers to that. God's saving purpose in action. The effectual call. And we're able to see the truth of God, believe his word, which is a light to our path. We know what is right in terms of God's definition of what is right. It's a remarkable transformation. And it takes away that fallen desire to seek the darkness, to love the darkness, and gives us a love for the light so you can gladly come to rest in the light of God's presence. It's an incredible transformation. Do you know, one of the key mottos of the Reformation was ex tenebras lux, out of the darkness, light. It's a wonderful thing. You see, the glorious light of the gospel had been hidden. It had been substituted for a false gospel. But when the light of the true gospel was rediscovered and proclaimed, the face of the world was changed. The darkness fled before the light. And this wonderful, effectual call, it's on Peter's heart throughout this letter. 1 Peter 1.15, as he who called you is holy. 1 Peter 2.21, for to this you were called. 1 Peter 3.9, knowing that you were called. 1 Peter 5, the God of all grace who called us to his eternal glory by Christ Jesus. Each time that effectual call to salvation And Peter is saying, believer, you have been called from darkness into that most marvelous light. And so, if you're a believer tonight, you should marvel and rejoice in the fact that God, by his grace, has delivered you in that way. Laid hold of you. We are exceptionally blessed. Nothing to do with what we have done. Just sovereign grace from darkness into light. And then we're also told in verse 10 that we're receivers of mercy who had not obtained mercy but now have obtained mercy. Again, Peter quotes from the Old Testament from the prophet Hosea. Hosea 1 and verse 10, in the place where it was said to them, you are not my people, then it shall be said to them, you are sons of the living God. Hosea 2 verse 23, I will have mercy on her who had not obtained mercy Then I will say to those who are not my people, you are my people, and they shall say, you are my God. And there in the Old Testament speaks of a time of rejection and restoration for Israel, but Peter uses that and applies it to believers. You know, Paul uses the same sort of application in Romans 9. Uh, It says, for he says to Moses, I will have mercy on whomever I will have mercy. I will have compassion on whomever I will have compassion. Now, those verses have particular significance for the Gentiles, who were no people and yet in Christ have been made the people of God. And so Peter is underlining the wonderful unity of believers, Jew and Gentile, recipients of divine mercy and grace drawn to be the people of God. And you know, the emphasis is on the mercy of God, that compassion that God has lavished upon those who deserve nothing from him. 
taking sinners and making them God's people through mercy. Mercy, undeserved, unexpected love, unexpected compassion and generosity. God withholding the just punishment. The Lord is merciful. It's his character. Do you know that's true in a very general sense? He deals mercifully in his providence, doesn't he? He demonstrates his forbearing compassion to sinners, even though he has every right to consume those who are in rebellion against him, who hate him, and who reject him instantly. We read it together, Psalm 145, 9. The Lord is good to all, and his tender mercies are over all his works. Now, a time will come when that will end, and there will be final judgment. But Peter is speaking about the special mercy here, not the, the general mercy, but the special mercy that God brings to those who are saved. And we are equally undeserving, yet he chooses to have mercy, to show generosity, to bestow his compassion, his forgiveness, his pardon, his deliverance. It's incredible mercy. And we say, well, why? Why does he do it? It's because it's his character and his purpose. And then we say, well, why such love to me? Why such mercy to me? He has mercy on whom he has mercy. Who are we to question the Lord? Does the pot question the potter? He doesn't show mercy because he has to or because some sinners are more worthy of mercy than others. None are worthy. Mercy is holding back the just punishment we deserve. All our righteousness, the Bible says, is as filthy rags. And also God is not merciful only because Christ made it possible for him to be merciful, as some say. The plan of salvation, the gospel, was God's design. So we say, well, why? Because he chose to be merciful. One says, mercy arises solely from God's imperial pleasure. It is mind-blowing, but it's true. And so if you're a believer tonight, do you realize how blessed you are? How blessed you are. We are so blessed. Do we, do we bow in adoration and worship before God, the Father of mercies? You know, we're able to say with the psalmist, I will praise your Lord among the peoples. I will sing to you among the nations for your mercy reaches to the heavens. Or Psalm 136, give thanks to the Lord for he is good. His mercy endures forever. Great is his mercy towards them that fear him. This special mercy. You know, there's a lovely hymn written by a man called Joseph Addison, which says, When all thy mercies, O my God, my rising soul surveys, transported with the view, I'm lost in wonder, in love, and in praise. Titus 3.5, Not by works of righteousness, which we have done, but according to his mercy, he saved us. What a privilege. What a privilege. And then lastly, as we finish, Verse 10, God's ambassadors. What is one of the significant purposes in all that God has given to us in Christ? Why have we been set apart in such a way? Why have we been given so many privileges? Well, just drop back to verse 9. That you may proclaim the praises of him. All of these stunning privileges. And then this believer, you are an ambassador of the living God. The word proclaim there is unique in its use. So you won't find that word anywhere else in the original language in Scripture. 
It means to publish, to declare, to tell out, to make known what is unknown. And that's what we are called to do, to proclaim. And you say, well, what do we proclaim? Well, we proclaim the praises or the excellencies of God. And the sense there is the ability of God to do wondrous things, heroic deeds. We have the privilege of proclaiming the glory and the greatness and the majesty of our God and the wonderful works that he has done. You know, he has the ability to do mighty things. And in fact, the emphasis from Peter here is on the works that he has done. What a privilege. Do you know, declaring the praises of God is the great work of worship. And in this sense, it is to recount the mighty works of God. Do you know, I hope that while you're down here, you take in some of the beauty of creation all around you. And we marvel at creation. And so we praise God for it. When I consider your heavens, the works of your fingers, you know, we marvel at providence, how God works in history, how he raises kings and he puts them down. But, you know, all sorts and above all, it is the work of God in salvation that draws out our greatest praise. You see, as one says, praise not only offers the sacrifices of thanksgiving for God's deliverance, but praise adores God the deliverer. From declaring the works of God, the sacrifice of praise moves on to praise the name of God. The very pinnacle of devotion is to rejoice in God himself, the doer of those deeds. And friends, the praises of God must rise from the lips of his people. You know, we join with the hosts of heaven when we sing the praises of God, when we delight in the Lord, we praise and adore, not to gain his favor, but because adoration is our response to his grace. And this praising, this declaring the excellencies of God has another impact because we declare before the nations the name of the Lord. Our praises must bear witness to the world. Psalm 96, declare his glory among the nations, his wonders among all peoples. And so if you're a believer tonight, you are an ambassador. You're an ambassador for the living God. You are an ambassador for the Lord Jesus Christ. Ambassadors because we are the very ones that have benefited immeasurably from his wonderful works. And you know, when we see it like that, would it not transform our witness? You know, instead of being filled with with fear and embarrassment and with shame, we should have the courage of those who have been given the privilege to be heralds of the living God. Our God who has done great and mighty things, who has called us into his service. And what is more, he has given us the Holy Spirit who enables us and empowers us. And friends, we need to exercise our call. It's an incredible privilege to speak of the Lord and to proclaim his excellencies. Dear friends, you know, we've been looking at all these privileges. You know, if you're a believer, this is who you are in Christ. This is what has been given to you. United with Christ, all blessings through him, his life in us, access to God, secure in the Lord because we're in Christ, and he is secure in his relationship to God because of the Trinity, our security in him, our access in him, our union with him. We have affection for the Lord. We love him. We feel the fullness of that affection because God's love has been shed abroad in our hearts and we love because he first loved us. 
chosen in him before the foundation of the world, reigning with him, a holy people, God's own people, purchased by Christ in the light, called out of darkness, recipients of mercy, and those who proclaim the excellencies of God through the work of the Holy Spirit in and through us. You know, surely we say with Paul, blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places in Christ. And here you are tonight. If you're a believer, you're a sinner. You deserve nothing. Condemnation, punishment, hell. And yet because of matchless grace, you have been brought into Christ and you are blessed immeasurably. You were unlovely, broken, rebels, enemies. And yet now in Christ, you are kings and priests, ambassadors, and most wonderfully united with the fairest of 10,000, the perfect saviour, Jesus Christ. Doesn't it thrill your heart? Are you not overwhelmed? Are you not thankful? Praising your saviour all the day long. And you know, we long for others to know it too. And if you're here tonight and you're not a believer, we pray that God in his grace would open your eyes so that you would see not just the privileges, but nothing compares to knowing Jesus Christ. Nothing compares to being right with God in him. And so I urge you, turn from your sin, trust in Christ, trust in his work on the cross, and know what it is to be forgiven and to be right with God. Go to him, plead with him, cry out to him. And the one who goes to him, he will in no wise cast away. And for those of us who know him, until we're called home, what should our attitude be? Happy if with my latest breath I may but gasp his name, preach him to all, and cry in death, behold, behold the Lamb. Praise be his name. Amen.